Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, uh, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. And he said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, Well, here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, Oh, they've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes that dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will see that a fierce animal has devoured him, and then we'll see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Uh, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? 
ooh, come, let us, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and he said, The boy is gone and, and I, where shall I go? Well, then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it. And he said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackloin on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we've been studying uh, the book of Genesis this year. We've been looking at it in 12 parts, uh, and we've been looking at those parts in kind of three mini sections. The first week, uh, we looked at, the first section rather, we looked at the story of creation in four sermons. The second kind of section, we looked at the story of Abraham in four sermons. In this last section, we're looking at the life of Jacob in four sermons. Now, this is hard to do because the life of Jacob consists of 26 chapters, really, of Scripture. Um, but I think it's a, it's a worthy task. And so we, we started off looking at the birth of Jacob. Uh, last week, if you were here, we looked at Jacob's salvation, uh, which came through wrestling with God. It came in this moment, as we said last week, where, where God, not only did Jacob realize his weakness before God, but where actually God came to Jacob in weakness. And you know, we talked about this on the talk pack this week, but but just to clarify that, in, in no way were we saying last week that, that God was weak. But we, we were saying that God has this way of coming to us in a veiled way. God has this way of not showing all of his strength when he meets us. God has this way of covering himself. Uh, I think of Philippians 2, where Jesus is as though he was in the very nature of God. He was in the fullness of God. He did not take advantage of being equal with God, but he covered himself. He veiled himself. He made himself a servant, even becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. God isn't weak. He is all-powerful, all-strong, all-authority, but he can come to us in weakness so that we can see him, so we can know him and know his true strength and know how good he really is. So we've looked at Jacob's birth. We've looked at Jacob's salvation. Next week, we're going to dive into God's providence, how God is kind of fitting this whole big story together to, to show his glory for the good of his people and for the praise of his glory. But this week, I think it's an important passage. And I want to look uh, at this passage with you as we think about Jacob's suffering. So three things that I want to think about in, in this uh, big passage of text, a lot of text to get through today, is first of all, the promise 
secondly, man's undoing of the promise. And then finally, God's fulfillment of the promise. So let's look at the promise. If you've been coming to Christ's covenant for any amount of time, uh, you're familiar with something that I talk about. It's, and the, the word that I use for it is the narrative. And the narrative is basically your little mini autobiography that you write for yourself before you actually live your life. It's your, it's your destiny. It's your dream. It's, it's, it's this story that you want to have told about you someday. This is, this, if I could do this and if I could accomplish this and if I could chase down these things, then I'll be somebody. Then I'll really be special. Then I'll really be worthy. And if anything doesn't go according to the narrative, to our plan, to this, to this story that we set out for our life, it can actually be very devastating. In fact, a common phrase that I often hear in, in all of my pastoral counseling, uh, when I meet people in, in the depths of their sadness, more than not, I hear this phrase, it wasn't supposed to go this way. It wasn't supposed to be this way. <laughs> I had it all mapped out. I thought it was going to go like this. Everything was going great. And then this. And now this happened. And I think that the hardest thing in life is, is having to reset your plan. It's having an expectation. It's having a plan. And it not working out and having to step back and, and reset. And say, okay, well, well now what? How, how am I going to put the pieces back together after this? Those can be incredibly devastating times. Times of great suffering, of great pain. The interesting thing about the book of Genesis, though, the whole story of Genesis, is it's all about resetting expectations, resetting plans. Adam and Eve, they had a narrative laid out for them. They were supposed to be in the garden with God forever, enjoying his goodness, enjoying the blessing of the garden. But of course, they fell into sin. Their narrative had to be reset. Their expectations had to be redone. Of course, after this, God promised them an offspring, an offspring that would come and undo the curse of their sin, that would come and undo the curse, uh, the, the, the hardship that the serpent had brought upon them. And so they have an offspring, and I can imagine the promise that they felt in this offspring, Cain. Finally, God has given me a son. God has given us Cain. He's going to undo what, this, this evil that we have brought into the world. But of course, rather than Cain undoing the curse, it was the curse that undid Cain. And he murders his brother. And expectations had to be reset. Then, of course, God called Abraham, said he'd be the father of the great nation. Well, it was a big problem, right? Abraham didn't have any children. He didn't have a son. Of course, after a time, he realized, maybe I should try to have a son with my uh, wife's maid, Hagar. He does. He has a boy, Ishmael. I'm sure he thought to himself, this must be the son of the promise. This must be my offspring. This must be the one that can take my name forward. But, of course, that wasn't... God's plan. God would have Abraham wait till he was a hundred years old to have the son of the promise, Isaac. And then later, God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And over and over and over again, expectations, plans, the narrative is, it's always being reset. It's always being redone. Of course, Isaac had two sons. We talked about this last week or two weeks ago. Esau, the favored son. I'm sure Isaac thought, man, Esau's it. He's the answer. He's the offspring. He's the one. He's this manly guy. He's my favorite son. But of course, the, the blessing wouldn't go through Esau. And then here we have the story of Jacob. And again, dreams are reset. And I mentioned last week that, that Jacob had to run away to get away from Esau. And he went away to his wife's brother, his mother's brother, rather, a guy named Laban. 
And a lot happens to Jacob when he's with Laban. Uh, but one of the interesting things that happened is, is that Jacob comes away from his time with Laban with not one, but really two and kind of four wives. Uh, the story goes like this. Uh, Jacob goes to, to Laban's household and he sees that he has two daughters. This is from Genesis 29. It says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, we don't exactly know. Commentators say a lot of different things about what the Bible means about Leah having weak eyes. But we do know that it's not a compliment to Leah. Uh, But Rachel, beautiful in form and appearance. And said, Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you for seven years for the hand of your younger daughter, Rachel. And so Jacob sets out. He serves Laban for seven years, and finally the seven years is over, and and Jacob's going to finally get his prize. He's going to get Rachel, and they have the wedding. And again, how exactly this happens, uh, you know, there's probably some questions up in the air, but they have the wedding. He thinks he's marrying Rachel. Beautiful in form and appearance. They have the celebration. They go into the tent that night. They consummate the marriage, and he wakes up the next morning and realizes it's not Rachel, but it's Leah, her sister, now, that's a bad wedding joke right there. That's, that's a bad prank. And, and I know some of y'all think, well, how did that actually happen? And actually, there, there, are, some, there are some things that, that I could tell you that would make you understand how this happened, but that's a question for the sermon talkback. So you'll have, to, you'll have to ask that. But anyway, he's married to this woman, but he was in love with her sister. And so he goes to Laban and says, I'll work another seven years. Uh, you know, you, he says, you fooled me. And Laban says, we have to work another seven years to get Rachel. And sure enough, he does, but now he's got these, these two women that, that he's married to. And again, that, that's a problem. They're jealous of one another. Uh, of course, Leah, you know, hates. She knows that he, he really loves Rachel, but Leah begins to give him sons. Leah has one son, then another son, and then she has four sons. And she thinks, ah, finally, I've won uh, Jacob's affection. I've won his attention. I've given him all these boys. Of course, Rachel gets jealous, but she's barren. She can't have any children. And so, in this kind of strange uh, you know, way, she gives her husband another woman, Bilhah, her servant. And he has two sons with her. Well, then Leah gets jealous. So she gives Jacob her servant, uh, a lady named Zilpah, and he has two sons with her. It's this big mess of jealousy and different mothers then Leah has two more sons. So they have 10 sons total at this point. But finally, God opens Rachel's womb and she has a son, Joseph. And you notice in the text that there's something special about Joseph's birth. When Joseph is born, immediately after Joseph is born, Jacob goes to Laban. This is in chapter 30, verse 25. He says, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and my country, right? You can see the satisfaction at last. This is my boy. This is the one. I've had the child that I have been waiting for. Now I am ready to go home. Now, Rachel actually had another child, a child named Benjamin, and she, and she actually was, died in childbirth. But Jacob was the one. He was the chosen one. There was something special about him. Of course, sorry, Joseph was the one. Of course, Jacob loved all of his children. He loved Benjamin, but he really loved Joseph. 
Now, you have to wonder, well, why? Why was he so affectionate? Well, obviously, you know, he loved Rachel the most. She was the firstborn son, or he was the firstborn son of Rachel. You know, maybe he had heard about his grandfather, Abraham, who had had uh, the, the true son of the promise, Isaac, with his true wife. Maybe he always thought that Rachel was his true love. And he heard about his grandfather that had Isaac with his true wife and said, this is, this is what I desire. He'd seen his father. He'd seen Isaac favor Esau his whole life. And oftentimes the, the sins of the father repeat themselves. But undoubtedly, Jacob saw his future in Joseph. This was Rachel's boy. This was the child in his mind of the promise. And this is where chapter 37 picks up. Now, Joseph, as we saw in the beginning of the chapter, being the good boy, he's out in the field, he's working hard, but not the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. No, they weren't working hard, and when Joseph gets back, he lets his father know it. And it didn't matter what those other boys said, because if Joseph had given him a bad report, that's what Jacob was going to believe. You know, some of you have been uh, the Joseph, right? Some of you are the golden-haired child of your family. And no matter what you say, that's what the family is going to do. Some of you are the other kids in the family. You've got that brother or that sister, and it's hard to be that. But anyway, of course, Joseph always pleased Jacob. Even this report pleased Jacob. He said, I can count on Joseph. And so he gives Joseph this present, and it wasn't a normal present. It was this coat, this coat of many colors. Of course, at this time, uh, the process of dyeing material was incredibly difficult. So to dye the same material many different colors would have been an incredible feat. It would have been very, very hard to do. This would have been an incredibly expensive garment. So the, the first strike against Joseph is he brings the bad report against his brothers. The second bad, the second strike against Joseph is that he gets this photo, this coat from his father. He gets this incredibly amazing gift. But then it gets even worse. He's already got two strikes. But then he starts having these dreams. And he dreams at first that the sheaves of the field are bowing down to him. And Joseph tells his brothers. And the text says they hated him all the more for this. The second dream is even worse. He's, he saw in the second dream that the sun and the moon and the stars were all bowing down to him. And he tells the dream to his brothers and to his father. And his father, of course, gets upset with him. What are you thinking here, that your mother and your father are going to bow down to me? Now, now some people have said that this is evidence that, that Joseph was arrogant, that he was full of pride, that he was a cocky and arrogant boy. And maybe he was. The text doesn't really tell us how to interpret this. You can read that into the text, but it doesn't really tell us that, that Joseph had sinned here or done anything wrong. But he was at least unwise in this. You know, pro tip, if you ever have a dream that people that hate you are going to be bowing down to you, just keep that one to yourself, okay? Just, just say, okay, I hope this works out, but don't tell it to them. Don't tell the people that hate you that they're going to be bowing down to you. But here's the deal. We all have dreams. Now, of course, this was a dream given by God. We're going to see the fulfillment of it. Uh, but, but Joseph doesn't understand all that. At this point, he's just a kid having a dream. He's just a kid thinking about something. He got this a dream, and it got him excited. I could see him being excited. This, this amazing vision had been given to him, and maybe it was going to come true. Maybe he was really going to be somebody special. 
Maybe he was really going to be worth something. Maybe he was really going to do something amazing with his life. And, and even in his little mind, a narrative started to form. You know, we all have dreams, even from the time we're a little kid, maybe not actual dreams. But I mean, even I remember as a kid just being full of daydreams, right? You know, I had this turnaround, this car turnaround part in my backyard right outside of the carport. We had a basketball goal there. Now, if you've ever seen me play basketball, you probably don't believe that I grew up with a basketball goal, but I did. And this was right around the time that Jordan was winning all the, starting to win all the championships. And I would go back in the car turnaround and man, I can't tell you how many times that I, that it came down to me in my imagination, I'm all by myself and all my buddies, of course, that somehow we'd all ended up on the same NBA team. And it came down to me to take the last second shot to win the NBA championship. And it usually went something like this, you know, Dees pulls up for the mid-range jumper. Oh, he just off, but he grabs the rebound and banks it in. For the... Yeah. But of course, as you get older, your dreams develop. You, you know, you miss enough unguarded mid-range jumpers in the back of your house. And uh, you realize, I'm probably not going to the NBA. But of course, something develops in your mind. Some narrative happens. Some, some significant thing. This is, this is how I am. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to make myself known. This is how I'm going to show everybody that I'm special. The narrative begins to form. The destiny begins to form. So we've looked at the, the promise, the idea of promise. But secondly, we get to man's undoing of the promise. In the next scene, what happens? Of course, Jacob sends Joseph out to the field. Now, this is actually significant. He first goes to Shechem, where he thought that they were, but then he's redirected to Dothan. We'll see why that's significant later. And, of course, as soon as he walks up, he's hopeful to see his brothers. But what do they say? What do the brothers say? Here he comes, Joseph, that dreamer, that dreamer Joseph. Who does he think he is? And so they begin plotting. They want to kill him. But faithful Reuben, the firstborn, this is what firstborn children do, right? They, they're thinking about their mom and dad. Hold on, don't kill him. Dad's going to be distraught. Let's just throw him in this pit. Of course, Reuben had the plan to get him out of the pit uh, later. But I can't imagine this. The, the brothers, they grab their little brother, they viciously, and, and I'm sure they're saying, we should kill you, we should kill you, and they viciously throw him into this pit. And what's so interesting about this, the way that the story is told, what do they do right after they've done this? They sit down and eat. I mean, how much disdain do you have to have for someone? You throw your brother into the pit, this, this deep pit with no water, at the bottom that he can't escape from. And then you're so nonchalant about this evil that you've just done that you just sit, sit down and have lunch. So Joseph is in this pit. Now, you know, I titled the sermon Sheol. It's the Hebrew term for grave or the place of the dead. And the term only comes up once in this story at the very end when Jacob is lamenting his dead son or what he thought was his dead son, Joseph. Verse 35 says, all of his sons and all of his daughters rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus, his father wept for him. You know, <clears throat> when you read that at the end of the story, you think to yourself, golly, surely one of the boys is going to crack and say, you know what, he's still alive. But of course, by that point, if you listen when Amy was reading the story, he was all is as good as dead. 
They'd sold him off. They'd sold him off into slavery. They, they, they figured they'd probably never see him again. But it's interesting terminology. Sheol. I'll go down to Sheol to my son. Sheol, of course, was the, the word for grave, the word for the dead. But another translation of Sheol actually is the bottomless pit or the place of no return. Sheol, the pit, the, the, the pit that you can't get out of, the pit that you can't return from. Of course, you can hear Jacob's loss here. What is my life now? now all of his children come to comfort him. He says, no, what is my, lo- what is my life now? I've lost the promise. I've lost the one. I've lost Joseph. I've lost this one that I was hoping in. I've lost this one that I loved so much. What about Joseph? He was in Sheol too. I can't imagine how much this must have hurt him. You know, it's his brothers. It's these brothers that, you know, maybe he was arrogant against them. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he knew there was a little disdain, but not, he didn't think this was going to happen to him. He surely didn't think they were going to do this to him, to, 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 to leave him for dead and then sell him as a slave. All of his dreams, all of his dreams, these great dreams that he had just had, he was just on the top of the world, you know. He had the coat from his father. He had the dreams that he was going to be somebody special. And he's going out to see his brothers, and then all of a sudden, the narrative is undone. It's all lost. Joseph went from the top of the world to the bottomless pit, just like that. You know, for some reason, as I was thinking about this text this week, uh, the old movie, uh, it's an old Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, came to mind. The scene where George Bailey and everything's going great for him. It's Christmas. Things are good in life. His brother's coming home, a war hero. George Bailey's on the top of the world. And then old Uncle Billy goes out and loses $8,000. And now George is going to jail. And everything is lost. And his name is tarnished. And his reputation is going to be lost. And his business is going to close up. And he goes to see Mr. Potter to try to get some help. And Potter says to him, look at you. You used to be so cocky. You were going to go out and conquer the world. You once called me a warped, frustrated old man, but what are you but a warped, frustrated young man? A miserable little clerk crawling back here on your hands and knees and begging for help. No securities, no stocks, no bonds, nothing but a miserable little $500 equity and a life insurance policy. You're worth more dead than alive. And I think this story today, and the reason I wanted to meditate on this, I I think it's an incredibly helpful story. Uh, It's a necessary story. For those of you who have or who are experiencing loss or death or harm, it's a great story for those of you, as I said last week, who've been thrown off the mountain. You know, I said in the intro that, that Christians, one of the things that we should be marked by as Christians is the way that we love one another, right? Jesus says, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. We should love one another really, really well. That should be a mark of who we are in Christ. One of the things that should be a marker of Christians is how much we care for those in need, right? Jesus says, if you've done it the least of these, you've done it to me. It's one of the reasons we're doing Bless the City. But another thing that Christians should be known for, something that we should really know how to do well is that Christians should be people that can suffer, Christians should be people who know how to endure pain. Yet if you've read the New Testament, you've seen this. 
In, in the New Testament, it's about many things, but one of the things that the New Testament is certainly about is it's a manual for how to go through suffering, how to go through pain, how to endure hardship. In one sense, it's instruction for Sheol, instruction for loss. And so as, before we kind of move forward in the story, I think one of the most practical things that I can do for you at this juncture in the sermon is to prepare you for the pit, is to prepare you to lose, is to prepare you to get diagnosed with cancer, is to prepare you to lose your job, is to prepare you to face a real injustice where you're clearly in the right, but everyone thinks you're in the wrong. Again, this is what so much of the New Testament is about. Here's one example. This is 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad in his glory when his glory is revealed. Suffering isn't strange. Everyone suffers, and maybe especially Christians. You know, people will say when when you come to Christ, your life gets easier. You know, you'll hear that. And in one sense, that's true insofar as it means that when you come to Christ, you're equipped for hardship, right? Your life does get easier in that coming to Christ gives you the tools to endure hardship. I think of Matt has this great song called, I Have a Peace. And it says, I have a peace I can't explain that goes beyond the sorrow. For there's a truth I can't erase. Your love is my tomorrow. Through deepest loss, through highest gains, I have a brighter treasure. The grass will die, the flower fade, but God is mine forever. So if someone says, come to Christ, and your life will get easier, if they, if they mean that to say, you will be equipped to face hardship, well then yes and amen. But if they mean that in a worldly sense, that good things will happen to you if you come to faith in Christ, well typically the opposite is true. You see, Christ in his kingdom wants to use you. If you come to Christ, he he doesn't want you to just sit around and enjoy life. He wants you to be useful for the sake of his kingdom, to, to advance his kingdom against a world that hates him and that hates his church and that hates his kingdom, which is why so much of the New Testament is about enduring pain. So don't be surprised when you suffer. This is normal. And, and I think as Christians, we should be among those people who are best prepared for it. So let me just give you a few things to hold on to, a few things to remember. Some of you are in the midst of great pain right now. For some of you, it's coming. Remember these things. First, remember your life. <laughs> remember that if you're in Christ, your life is not your own. Some of you are not equipped to suffer because you have the wrong vision for your life. You think your life is about you. You think your life is about your fulfillment, your happiness. In your life, the narrative is ultimate. Your achievement is everything. And if that is the case, you won't suffer well. Anything that comes along that throws you out of the narrative, out of your great story, it will devastate you. But if you see your life as the Lord's, that he is using you for his purposes, his eternal purposes, well, then you'll really be good at suffering. 
Then you can have the attitude of Paul, who said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond all comparison. If you see your life is not your own, you'll be able to understand how to suffer and, and you'll be able to understand the pain in light of the whole. And I saw Francis Chan give this illustration years ago, but he took some string just like this. And you know, he said, now imagine it goes on forever. And he said, look, imagine if this string represents your life. And the life that you live on earth is just this blue part of the string. See that? See, if we, if we really understand the weight of glory, that one day we'll be with God forever, these few years that we have on earth are very, very, very insignificant compared to the whole thing. And, you know, and if this is all you got, then any little ding that comes your way, it'll wreck you. Because, man, you're, you're just holding on to this little bit. But if this is all you got, then if a little ding, a little mark in that blue part throws you off, you can see it in light of this. That actually God is at work. There's a bigger story going on. And God, in, through these light and momentary troubles, is, is achieving something for you that is far beyond this. It is a glory that goes on and on and on. So remember your life. Remember that your life here is, is this big. It is so small. It isn't yours. It's God's. And ultimately, that's the question. Are you living for your narrative? Or are you living for God's narrative? Is your life about the story that you're telling or the story that God is telling you know, Crawford Lewis, who gave an excellent lecture last week at the Covenant Institute, you know, he said, you'll know a lot about your idols if you think about what you can't lose. What can't you lose? What do you have to have? What is necessary for you? And whatever that is, that's, that's what's chief in your life. That's what's an idol in your life. If it's anything other than God, it's an idol in your life. The true Christian remembers their life and that it's not theirs and that their story isn't ultimate. And if you do that, you can suffer really well. Secondly, though, remember God's people. And again, one of the problems with suffering is the narrative. It's we want to tell this great story. And even if the story isn't so great on the inside, we really want it to be great on the outside. And it seems like everyone's life is going great, right? And this becomes even more obvious through things like Instagram and Facebook and social media. Everybody posts the good stuff on there. And so it's easy to think, man, what is wrong with me? But when you're suffering, you have to remember God's people. You know, we talked about this in my group on Tuesday night. Um, Roman Catholics, of course, believe in the discipline of confession, uh, that you would go to a priest to confess your sins and receive from the priest absolution. And of course, you know, I just want to say that's, that's not a biblical position. Uh, we, of course, believe that the only way to receive absolution from your sins is through faith in Christ, through the blood of Jesus Christ, not through some 
you know, not through some pathway that a priest may give you. But the discipline of confession, and when the reformers, Martin Luther and others, uh, said that this is not a sacrament of the church, they said that in the fact that going to a priest is not a discipline of the church because they talked about what's called the priesthood of every believer. And, 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 and what they would desire to happen is not to get rid of confession, but just to say you should be confessing to every priest, to every believer, the priesthood of all believers. This is one of the beauties of the church, is that we can bear one another's burdens, that we can struggle with one another, that we confess sins one to another and be healed. And I just want to encourage you with this. Is the discipline of confession a part of your life? Is the discipline of sharing your weaknesses with one another a part of your life? We, we always want to go to one another in strength. You know, I see this over and over and over again. When, when everything's going good, people are inviting people in. When everything's going bad, people push away. They don't dive into community. But this is not the way of the church. This is the, the way the church works says if, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And we shouldn't be ashamed of bringing burdens and sin and pain to one another. I, I just want to say this to you guys right now. Don't ever apologize to bring a burden to me. Don't ever apologize to bring one of your burdens to, to Blake or to one of our other pastors. We're pastors. We're shepherds. We, we want to share the burdens of the people that God has called us to care for. That's, that's our job. That's, primar that's primarily our job. So don't ever apologize for this. We're all in this thing together. When you guys are rejoicing, I rejoice with you. When you guys suffer, I suffer with you. That's the body. So remember your life. Remember God's people. Thirdly, third thing to remember in suffering is to remember God's purpose. Remember that in every trial, even on the worst day, God is at work in you and that he is working through you. And we clearly see that in this story. If anything, that's what this story is about. You know, Romans 5 Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and that endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As I said before, suffering gets our gaze away from the immediate. It gets our gaze onto the true hope that we have, Right? It's easy, it's easy to not be enamored with this life when you're suffering. It's easier to hope in the glory that is set before you when you're suffering. And this is good. It reminds you of who you really are. And in all of this, God is producing character, character that is glorious in you. There was an 18th century uh, hymn writer named Robert Keene, not to be confused with Robert Earl Keene. But Robert Keene put it like this. He says, when through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. I just want to say this. You need the fire. I need the fire. You need your dross to be consumed. You need your gold to be refined. Don't be so arrogant as to think that you don't. Of course you do. You know, whether, whether or not 
Joseph was at fault, whether or not Joseph was arrogant, he still needed this. God was preparing Joseph for the biggest job in the world. God literally was going to use Joseph, as we see later in the story, to save countries, to save thousands of people. He needed fire, and so do you, and so do I. And if you know that, if you believe that, if you, if you remember God's purposes, you'll suffer well. So remember your life, remember God's people, remember God's purpose. Fourthly, remember that God suffers. You know the amazing thing about Joseph's story is that it so parallels Jesus' story. He was anointed by God from the beginning. He was innocent. He was betrayed by the people that he was closest to. He experienced great injustice. But through his pain, through his suffering, the whole world was saved. Again, eventually in this story, through the suffering of Joseph, God would save not only the people of Israel, God would save not only this family, but he would save a multitude of nations. Just like through the suffering of Christ, God has brought salvation to every tribe and tongue and nation. And this salvation comes through a God who was willing to suffer, who was willing to meet us in our suffering. As I said last week, the cross is the place where we meet God, your suffering is, is so oftentimes the place where you see Jesus most vividly, most clearly. You know, I've said this before, but my, one of my favorite places in Israel is a place, if you ever go to Israel, if you go with me, I'll take you to this place. But if you don't go with me, demand to be taken to this place. Be like, I'm not getting off the bus until you take me here. But it's a place called St. Peter Galagantu. Some tours skip over it. If your tour skips over it, leave a bad review on Yelp or whatever. But it's such an important place. It's St. Peter Galagante. It was Caiaphas' house. And it's one of those places where we can, we're like 99% sure that Jesus was there. And at the bottom of Caiaphas' house, there's this dungeon. There's this pit. It's literally a pit that Jesus was likely, on the night that he was arrested and betrayed, thrown into the bottom of this pit, all alone, sitting there in the darkness all night long, facing what he knew would happen the next day, that he would go to the cross face the Father's wrath, and die for the sins of the world. In the midst of your suffering, when you get thrown into the pit, remember that Christ has been there. God suffers. God meets us in every weakness. And lastly, remember God's victory. Remember your life. Remember God's purposes. Remember God's people. Remember God suffers and remember God's victory. And this leads me to the third big point. I'm just going to catapult into the third big point. And I know I'm kind of running along, but this is God's fulfillment of his promises. We've looked at the promise, man undoing the promise, God's fulfillment of his promise. You know what's interesting about this story? This is something that I love about this passage. And this is something, that, you know, late, maybe one day in a few years, we'll come back and do a bigger study of Genesis. It's such a great book to look at in 12 weeks. It's a great book to look at in 20 or 30 or 50 weeks. But something that happened way back in Genesis 15, we didn't even look at it, but way back in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, when God is calling Abraham, when God is giving the promise to Abraham, when God is telling Abraham, you're going to be the father of this great nation, way back in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, this is before Isaac, it says, then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs 
There'll be servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You know what's so fascinating to me about all of this is God is not surprised by any of this. God told Abraham way back in Genesis 15, this is going to happen to your offspring. They're going to end up in Egypt. And how do they get to Egypt? How do the offspring of Abraham eventually get to Egypt? You know how it starts? Is Joseph's brothers say, you know what? We need to go down to Dothan. Shechem's no good. Let's go down to Dothan. And because they were in Dothan, that's where they saw these Midianites coming by on their way to Egypt. And because Joseph was there and they decided to sell him for 20 pieces of silver, he got down to Egypt and eventually the story goes from there. We're going to look at this more next week. And, and I say all this to say, look, what is your life? <laughs> and the answer is, it's, it's God's life. It's God's life, and he is working out his purposes and his plans for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And in the middle of this, sometimes the only thing that you can do is just hold on to that. In the middle of pain, in the middle of suffering, sometimes the only thing that you can do is hold on to that and, and trust in the victory of Jesus and trust in the victory of God and believe that God is good and that he will be victorious and that his plans really are better than yours and that there's a bigger story going on than the narrative that we like to write for ourselves. Are you confident in the victory of Jesus or are you just waiting around for your victory? And that will determine so much how you suffer, how willing you are to be thrown off track, how willing you are to go through pain I want to close with this letter by John Newton. John Newton's a famous hymn writer. He wrote Amazing Grace, but he's really not a hymn writer. He's really, he really was just a pastor that would write a weekly hymn for his sermons. Um, really an amazing guy. And he wasn't just a good preacher and a good hymn writer. He was a really, really good pastor too. And I know this is a book that many of y'all have read, but there's a great collection of his letters to his people that he would just send them for encouragement. And this is kind of a long letter, but since John Newton is inevitably a better pastor than I am, I just want to read this letter to you. And maybe I'm reading it especially to those of you who are in the midst of the fire right now, who are at the bottom of the pit right now. So hear this, hear this good word. Dear friend, you have lately been in the furnace and are now brought safely out. I hope you have much to say of the grace, care, and skill of the great refiner who watched over you, and that you have lost nothing but dross. Let this experience be treasured up in your heart for the use of future times. Other trials will come, but you have found the Lord faithful to his promise and have good encouragement to trust him again. I doubt not, but you will have your share of trials. But when the love of God is shed abroad in the heart by the Holy Spirit, it sweetens what bitter things the Lord puts into our cup and enables us to say, none of these things shall move me. Yes, the life of faith is a happy life. And if attended with conflicts, there is an assurance of victory 
If we sometimes get a wound, there is healing balm near at hand. If we seem to fall, we are raised again. And if tribulations abound, consolations shall likewise abound. It is not happiness to have an infallible guide, an invincible guard, an almighty friend, to be able to say of the maker of heaven and earth, he is my beloved, my shepherd, my savior, my husband. Oh, the peace that flows from believing that all events in which we are concerned are under his immediate disposal, that the hairs of our head are all numbered, that he delights in our prosperity, that there is a need be if we are in heaviness, and that all things shall surely work out for our good. How happy to have such views of God's sovereignty, wisdom, love, and faithfulness as will enable us to meet every painful dispensation with submission and to look through the changes of the present life to that unchangeable inheritance to which the Lord is leading us when all evil shall cease and where joy shall be perfect and eternal he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older things have passed away. At the top of the letter, Newton quotes a verse from our Lord Jesus, from John 16. And let me just read you that verse as we close. Jesus said to his disciples, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, says Jesus. I have overcome the world. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.